You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi Stella, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Sasha? I'm doing well. Um, we have a very special guest on the program today. We are going to spe- be speaking with Jessie Manisto, who I met several years back. She um, has a really fascinating online magazine that talks about overexcitability and giftedness. And Jessie, we are so pleased to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I love your show. Thank you. you. So maybe you can introduce yourself for our audience members who may not be familiar with you and your work. Yeah, of course. Uh, So most relevantly, uh, I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Third Factor magazine, where uh, our sort of tagline is uncommon paths for uncommon people. Uh, And by uncommon people, I mean the type of person that we're going to be talking about today, which is a gifted, creative, or just sort of quirky uh, overexcitable. These are other words, but uh, it's it's about this experience of being this type of person. Uh, I meant for it to be a side project while I pursued self employment in other areas, but it's uh, it's resonated enough that it's become a, sort of a big part of what I do every day. So that's what I uh, what I do. I also want to note before we start talking about this that I'm I'm not a trained expert in giftedness or gender, any of this stuff, but I'm exploring it sort of from the perspective of a journalist uh, and a researcher who covers this beat. Uh, and my audience includes a lot of these sorts of people. So yeah, yeah. That, that's that's why I'm here. And Jesse, you know, I think you first came across my radar when somebody, perhaps it was a parent or another therapist, sent me an article that it must have been from around 2016. Is that about right when you published I think it was that? A little later than that. I, yeah, okay. it came out in early 2019, though it, it feels like longer ago than that. <laughs> yeah, and it was about um, the overlapping traits of overexcitability and gender dysphoria. So not only do you work around the issue of overexcitability and giftedness and creativity, but you've also taken interest in the way many people who have these traits seem to be either exploring or questioning or sometimes also struggling with things like gender. So, you know, your work kind of overlaps many different areas that Stella and I have been covering on our podcast. So we're super excited to have you. So, no, I noticed the same thing, which was why I decided to look into the gender question. It just, it would come up for so many of these people uh, who are gifted and creative, especially. Um, You know, we can talk about creativity and androgyny and the research on that that predates all of this gender ideology uh discussion so yeah yeah it's 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 the same group and when I publish things that are about that are not about gender I think they're still very relevant to gender questioning teenagers even though they're not or gender questioning people of all ages even when they're not uh about gender per se uh which is why Mm -hmm. I'm now we have an issue coming out our our uh August issue which should be out around the time this goes live, uh, we'll, we'll cover, we'll, we'll finally be talking specifically about gender in an issue. But the stuff that comes after that, I hope anyone who, who comes to us questioning about that will find the other content relevant as well, because it's just about this experience of being a really intense, 
outlier and trying to figure out where you fit. So then what do you mean when you say gifted or intense? Like maybe you can start by helping us kind of have a definition here. Yeah, uh, that's a great place to start because giftedness uh, is one of those words, right? We, we all kind of hate that word. Uh, I would like to not use it, but we have to use the terms that people Google and uh, that, that lead them here. And that's one of them because it's on one level, you all know what it means to be gifted. You've talked about it on your podcast before. It's those kids who are really bright, really quick at learning, usually do well in school, though not always. Sometimes they're really bored in school, uh, scoring high on standardized tests and IQ tests, that kind of thing. Right. So, sure, that's who we're talking about. But there's more to it than that. It's it's not just about uh, smart, right? It's it's about um, okay. So at third factor, we try to use other words too to to get at this. Um, we have a, we have a Spanish mirror that just launched, and it's interesting to see what terms they use too, and how Google Translate renders them because I don't I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> but um, one of them used the term complex capacity, uh, or at least that's Ooh. what the translator gave me. So these are people with a complex capacity. Um, there's rainforest mind is something that a therapist, Paula Prober, who works with, with this population of gifted kids and gifted adults, uh, uses, um, or I also really like the term orchid, which is a metaphor, right? But it, uh, it hits the mark pretty well, uh, in terms of uh, it, it, it's a flower that can put out an amazing bloom, but it needs just the right resources to do so. Right. And, uh, but there's, there's another one that I like that, that I made up that I think describes this group really well. I call it being abstract intense, which is what I use to indicate people who like and are good at dealing with abstractions. Abstractions are what school is usually about, right? Like language is itself an abstraction. The word apple is different from the the thing you hold in your hand and you take a bite out of. Um, And so an abstract intensive person is all about these concepts in the mind, is very comfortable with that sort of thing, projections of the imagination, symbols moving around on a screen, as opposed to the the embodied experience. Uh, So perhaps you can understand why I'm pulling that out in this conversation, (laughs) because these are people who thrive on the Internet. Could I? Oh, I see. Could I ask, what's the rainforest mind? I have heard it before, but what what does it come from or where's it? Oh, yeah. No. So that uh, Paula Prober, a therapist, came up with that one. And she's got a couple books that would probably be really interesting to your readers. Uh, Your Rainforest Mind. And the other one is something like uh, A Guide to Your Rainforest Mind. Um, And it's she came up with that metaphor because no one wants to call themselves gifted. It sounds conceited and arrogant, but you she could explain what she was talking about to her clients in a way they could accept by talking about the difference between different biomes that there's, you know, we have the meadow and we have the, you know, we have the grassland. That's, that is a meadow, right? We have the desert, we have the tundra, and then we have the rainforest, which has a lot going down, going on in it. A lot. It's just very complex, very much, uh, very rich and dense and also gets clear cut a lot. She likes to use that metaphor too. So, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's what, that's what the rainforest mind idea is. Uh, but the main thing about these people is that they think differently from most other people and intensity, uh, overexcitability, uh, is, is often part of this experience. It's five different domains. You've talked about them again, I know on your show. So I'll just remind reader or listeners real quickly. Uh, those domains are the intellect, the imagination, the kinesthetic or psychomotor, uh, the sensory and the emotions. And those are ways that these uh, gifted or intense people 
uh, can manifest, can channel this energy in, in, in any of those five domains. And could you could you say a little bit more about that? Like in the intellect, it's kind of obvious if you're gifted, but the other ones, I suppose in the imagination, it's kind of obvious as well. Maybe I'm only doing the ones sure. that are obvious to me. <laughs> well, I think it'd be interesting, Jesse, just to hear you kind of talk about each and how those tend to manifest in people. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Uh, well, yes, like like you said, the, the intellect is, maybe it seems obvious, you like thinking, but it's it's things like questioning, right? Like always asking those pesky questions, which can go either way, right? Like questioning, why am I a girl? Why am I a boy? And either, there are people on either sides of this debate who are intellectually overexcitable and ask those those pesky questions. Uh, just the love of learning, the wanting to know everything, just devouring knowledge. That's intellectual overexcitability. Imagination is, of course, the, the vibrant fantasy world, uh, ability to envision and picture things, um, just, you know, creative capacity. Um, so that's, you know, imagination that's just very active. Uh, the psychomotor is, it's often linked to uh, ADHD symptoms is how a lot of that would be described now, but uh, or just anxiety as well. But it's the person who has a lot of energy that they just want to move. They squirm. They need they, they need to channel that energy somehow. Maybe they get into sports, uh, dance, anything like that. That's that's the psychomotor uh, excitable child or adult. Um, what am I missing? Um, we did sensory. sensory. Yeah, sensory. Okay, so that's uh, it, it. It can be the sort of um, hypersensitivity to smells and tastes and textures that you often hear linked to uh, autism spectrum disorders, but it could also be something just like aesthetic appreciation, being deeply moved by a sunset or beautiful music or that sort of thing. So there's more to it than just the fussiness about textures and so on. Um, and then I've also, sorry, I've also heard with the sensory that it could be like a really strong drive to seek physical pleasure as well. I mean, we tend to think about being sensitive to texture and clothing in a way that is an aversion, but I've also heard that that sensory excitability can lead to like a seeking out of, of constant stimulation. Yes, that's absolutely true. That is uh, one of the more positive ways that it can manifest, right? You you love your soft, fuzzy blanket. You love the beautiful artwork. You love you're moved by things that come in through the five senses, right? Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. and I love that you raise that because it it can apply to all of these overexcitabilities. All of them have a way of being annoying and alienating people, but all of them have a positive manifestation as well. And if you're a healthy person who has these intensities you manage to control it and inhibit the negative parts and channel it toward the, the, the good ones that bring you joy. That's where you're trying to get to. And right. then, and the last one is the emotions, right? So, so, and that's maybe the, the diff- most difficult one of all, uh, because you have big feelings and they, that's the thing you have to learn to manage and you not to bother other people with your big feelings. Um, but it's, so it's the heightened intense feelings complex emotions where you feel many things at one time. A lot of people in the third factor orbit talk about that, that they just feel too many things. There's the identifying with other people's feelings. Uh, and then you get into the, the somatic responses to feelings. You feel it in your body. Um, the negative aspects of this include things like perfectionism, responses that other people describe as overreacting, 
you can be melodramatic uh, if you haven't learned to manage this, but you also might uh, learn to swallow these big feelings. You learn quickly as a child that this is not a way that it that people react well to when you have big feelings. So uh, I, I think you've mentioned on your show before that a lot of these uh, gender dysphoric kids are actually very compliant. So uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not having big feelings. And that could be a, a defense against their own big feelings that are inside of them. Could I ask, um, you, you're saying it's over overexcitability and gifted are you kind of saying one is the other and the you know they they, are are you specifically interested in those two combos that's a really good question um in our very first issue of third factor we addressed that um overexcitability is often linked to giftedness but this is not really justified in the literature um They thought early on, I think this was maybe the late 80s, early 90s, roughly thereabouts, they were trying to look for ways they could test for giftedness differently than IQ tests. And they tried to use overexcitability for that. But the only overexcitability that really strictly correlates with giftedness, with what they're calling giftedness, because that's an abstraction too, like what does giftedness even mean? We get to decide that. Uh, But intellectual uh, achievement-oriented giftedness correlates with intellectual overexcitability And the others are things you see often in gifted classrooms. It's worth mentioning it to parents of gifted children, but it's not a reliable way to define those kids that they wanted to pull out for those classrooms. So there's a lot of overlap of these these two circles, but they're not they're not synonyms. Mm, Interesting. So you you know you also have mentioned in the past this something called the hedgehog dilemma related to overexcitability. C- can you explain what that is? What's the hedgehog dilemma? Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, a, a very important concept related. I think this is a connection I made, but I think it's useful for emotionally overexcitable people. Uh, the Hedgehog's Dilemma, it, uh, it was originally from Schopenhauer in an essay that he wrote in like the mid-1800s. Uh, he was comparing the human social experience to that of uh, being a hedgehog trying to huddle together for warmth. And, uh, that, you know, they, they're cold, so they want each other's uh, body warmth, so they pull together. But then they poke each other. And so they have to you know, manage between these, these two, two stresses of being too close, you'll hurt each other, but too far away and you'll freeze. And that's, um, you know, I actually copied this part out, um, that, that the need for society springs from the emptiness and monotony of men's lives drives them together, but there are many unpleasant and repulsive qualities and insufferable drawbacks once more drive them apart. The mean distance which they finally discover and which enables them to endure being together is politeness and good manners. Whoever does not keep to this uh, is told in England to keep his distance. Uh, I think not just in England, but but that's the passage that, that I, I copied out. And I think, yeah, it is the human experience. It's not just emotionally overexcitable people who experience this. But if you are more sensitive, oh, that's another term, right? The highly sensitive person that comes up a lot for this, um, HSPs. That's the phrase I orig- I would have, it's only overexcitability since I've started hanging out with all you Americans. <laughs> highly <laughs> sensitive is the word that I would have, it was in my lexicon for this type of person. Yeah. Well, 
And you found our little niche where I talked about overexcitability because <laughs> I thought it was the best thing to describe this group, whatever you want to call it. But HSP is more widely known here, too. I, I think many other oh, American listeners will will also know that one better. Um, overexcitability, I, that reminds me, I should mention, it specifically comes from the theory of positive disintegration, um, which is if you take OE, overexcitability, out of that theory – it can kind of lose some of its uh, explanatory power and implications. So um, I'm not going to talk about that a lot today. Uh, I've talked to Sasha before about that. So maybe you can like link to that or uh, third factor. We talk about it a lot, but yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, but now I've forgotten where I was going with that. Well, we were talking about the hedgehog's dilemma. So it's, it's, I'm hearing it as almost this tension between closeness and like almost a lack of boundaries, because inevitably when we are close with people, there are going to be things that are abrasive and annoying and frustrating about those people. But we also desperately need that closeness. So it's this kind of like, I'm almost thinking about how two magnets, like if they're too close, they get stuck together. And if they're, you know, like there's a like, rep- oh, yeah. little bit of a, a perfect, yeah, perfect distance. Yeah. Well, and this is why I pull out this story not to talk just about the human experience, which, of course, it represents, but about the experience of these outliers, these intense, uh, abstract, in their heads, deep feeling people uh, who are common in gifted classrooms, if not everyone in a gifted classroom, uh, because this is an unusual way of being. Uh, the more you're like this, the more you feel like an outlier, the more you feel like you're too much that you don't fit, uh, your brain is different from other people's. Um, and so you have trouble finding people who will mirror you, who will tell you that you're okay. And I think you don't have to have any other sort of, uh, you know, you don't, it's not necessarily something wrong with you. It just becomes, it starts to look like something's wrong with you. If you're in an environment where there's not many people like you, where there's not a lot of orchids growing, where it's all dandelions, right? The orchid and the dandelion is is the pair you hear with that metaphor. Uh, Why are you putting out this big showy bloom? No, you know, trying to show off. Why don't you just do like a normal little yellow puff? Um, Mm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's why I think that belonging is the biggest issue for this type of person. And if you're lucky, you're in a magnet school where there's all these other people who are like you. Um, and like my husband was in a magnet school and he told me he loved high school. And when we first started dating. I thought like, hmm, that's a bad sign. This probably is not going to work out because high school is <laughs> awful. And who would want to be back there? And then I realized he was in the magnet program and he's all his circle of friends. He's still close to his high school friends. They're all really weird. Um, one of them has ADHD, but not the other's don't have any of those diagnoses, but they are weird and quirky and intense. And they don't, it doesn't feel weird if you're surrounded by people like that. If everybody wants to read Plato, then it's not weird to read Plato, right? What, what, this must be an American thing. What's a magnet school? It's where, uh, it's, it, they, magnet, again, with a magnet metaphor, it's uh, pulling all the gifted kids into one school, like by the power of the magnet. So they're all together in one program. They get bussed in from far away. So that's a magnet school. From what age? Oh, it depends on the school district. For my husband, he was in one magnet in in middle school and then uh, another in high school. For me, uh, our our my district had on, had a magnet for elementary school only, and so after that, you were out of that into um, regular schooling. Mm. So yeah, <laughs> it's, 
depends and for, a lot. for our UK and Irish listeners and other parts of the world, elementary school goes up to like about age 10, I would say. And then middle school is around age 11 to 13 or 14. And then high school is grade nine, which is around 14 and up. Does that seem about right, Jesse? Yeah, absolutely. You see, I'm very conflicted because one part of me thinks, yes, you're right. They're lonely. They need other orchids so that they can discuss Plato. You're right. I get (laughs) it. (laughs) However, on another level, I think, but what about the kids who can't quite keep up and are almost dumped out of the magnet? And do you follow me? What about the kids who feel who who aren't as clever as the other kids in the magnet. And I, I, I've just tossed into all sorts of what ifs with that because it seems so young. So I don't know what I think about this. It's all relative, isn't it? Compared yeah. to the other kids you're around, which is kind of the, 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 the trick here, um, whether you fit or don't fit. Um, I don't know. Like you hear people talk about gifted and then highly and profoundly gifted and the profoundly gifted kids are, they feel out of place with just the regular gifted kids. And that can get a little like, okay, okay. Like maybe we're taking this too far. I understand that response. Um, I I think your Stella, your comment makes me think that, you know, something I also like to remind people uh, who read third factor and we've had, we've published articles to this effect that, yeah, you're different. You're maybe you feel weird. We're going to mirror you for the reasons you feel weird. But maybe you're also like other people more than you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also really important. So, yeah, that's it's it's it. Yes, there's truth on both sides there. When I work with kids who are exceptionally gifted like this, I mean, I have a couple of kids that I think are just really exceptionally gifted and they actually struggle with their ordinariness too. Like there are some areas in which they're clearly way above average, but sometimes kids like this can be such perfectionists that they have a hard time accepting the fact that, you know, you, you might pick up a new skill and really suck at it at the beginning, because if you're so used to being exceptional in one domain, it's really challenging to kind of come back down to earth and struggle just like, everybody else with certain things. So I think this this difficulty with how to manage the ways which you truly are quite different and quite unique, and then also ways in which you might just be like struggling like everybody else with some very fundamental, maybe teenage or adolescent or young adult issues. Mm. Completely. And I think like sometimes I see these kids and adults, I keep saying and adults because it continues, mm-hmm. um, but they they diagnose themselves with something like autism because they just say like, oh, yeah, no, I really struggle socially. And then I say to some of them, well, I think it's really common to struggle socially in the way you're describing. Like everyone else didn't have this figured out. They they have also embe- embarrassing memories where they made social faux pas like you can't you're not going to be perfect at everything right when you start. But perfectionism is a huge part of this. Uh, and that's why some of them are, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the emotional overexcitability resonates in, in that area sometimes. Cause they just, you know, Oh, self-loathing over the fact that I goofed up and I, I just can't mm-hmm. forgive myself. Like that's really part of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think that comes back to the, the hedgehog's dilemma um, where they, it, it you don't want, they get more hurt by being pricked by other people's quills and they hate themselves for pricking other people, right? That just yeah, is, yeah. That they, they can't take it. And so that's why I think that that metaphor, though it represents everybody, fits this group in particular. It, it does, it does. And I, 
I don't say it with any judgment and I kind of identify with a lot of it, but these people are very hard work. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. It, just, it does uh, have to be true. said. I, I do think, like, and I, I'm very hard work. I know I'm very hard work. And I, even saying it made me hard work. Do you follow me? Do, kind Because of, we oh, could yeah. wax lyrical about them. But I do think there has to be some acknowledgement of being a prickly hedgehog you know, is, is it's it's difficult to, to, to manage them, it's difficult to parent them, it's difficult to teach them, and it's difficult to be them. Oh, God, yeah. No, my, if you had my mom on here, she would confirm that for you. Uh, <laughs> very difficult children, uh, my sister and me. So, yeah, um, and, and some of this, I think some of the rules that we're putting up around, uh, that, 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 this, that gender ideology movement puts up about how you have to talk about different uh, genders, the, all the different ones, gender fluid, all these things, and the way we conceive of them almost seem to me to be an attempt to negotiate that. Like, all right, I'm, I know that I'm different and maybe I'm even difficult, but here are the rules. Like, that was part of the hedgehog's dilemma, right? It's... It, we ach- we achieve balance between the being cold and the prickling each other by this set thing of rules. Yeah. And the quirky kids who feel weird for this particular reason because they don't fit the gender norms because of their intensities of the intellect or the emotions. Um, they this is this is the rules that they're trying to propose to manage that difficulty because they know they're difficult. They're difficult mm-hmm. for themselves. They're difficult for their mm-hmm. parents. For their friends. So mm-hmm. I really relate a lot to what I see uh, from my own teenage years uh, to the, the way that these people are really clearly struggling and trying to make sense of it. Um, yeah. So uh, even yeah. if I don't always agree with how so they're doing it. Well, this is speaking of rules. I mean, there's there's also this set of I, I don't know if these are rules exactly, but there's a set of um explanations for why people feel different and why they're struggling with these things. And those are diagnoses. And a lot of adults reach out to me talking about, you know, just the way social media culture has impacted adolescent mental health. And people say, why do all these kids have all their diagnoses in their bio? Like, why is everyone putting their mental health disorders, quote unquote, in their bio? And I noticed that a lot of young people do seem to and adults too, like kind of bond over what we have in the past considered like their pathology. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think a a lot of kids are doing this because first of all, they don't have any confidence because they don't have others who are like them again, who have mirrored them and told them it's okay to be a weird blooming orchid in a field of dandelions uh, or to see other orchids. And so they think something is wrong with them. They just feel... Like, okay, something's wrong with me is a very common human experience. But people who go online and search for reasons that something is wrong with them, uh, you find diagnoses. I mean, doc, well, we do this with health too, right? Like, yeah. oh, I have Dr. a funny Google. feeling in my head. Oh, maybe I have an aneurysm, right? Oh, and then no. you're freaked out. <laughs> and so we all yeah. do it, even if we're not doing it about why we feel personally weird. Um, but what, what that activity allows is to find the other people who mirror their pain right and so they are bonding over this this defect the perceived defect and then they look for language to describe it and especially since we're depathologizing mental health which i generally i mean i agree with that but we also want to be clear about what the struggles are 
So when it's just, you know, people come in and say, oh, is emotional overexcitability the same as borderline personality disorder? Well, no. Borderline, I researched that because people asked me that. And I read some things I'm like, oh, that is not what I'm talking about. That's a very serious challenge versus just feeling like, oh, I have big feelings and I'm going to learn to manage them and I have the ability to learn to manage them, right? Those are two very different things, but flattened into a Google search, they look similar. Um, but then if you want to be the one who can improve, who realizes that this is a social skill deficit, I don't have a disability, I just haven't practiced this yet because I haven't found people who want to share my interests. Uh, so, you, so one person in a friendship says, all right, I am going to grow and I'm going to heal and maybe I'll change some things about myself. Then you're leaving behind the people who identified with your struggles and your pathology. And if you say, oh, I guess I thought I was autistic. I thought I was borderline, but I realized what those things really mean and they don't describe me and I'm going to change some of my behaviors. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be uh, a, a tough thing for that relationship formed over shared struggles. Um, and it's not how people make friendships in, in person, right? We, we get more of a view of the whole person versus what we search and what we describe ourselves on in, in, in a forum. Mm-hmm. I think the three of us, all three of us here, jumped out of us about the you know, overexcitable gifted person is the loneliness they feel. I think it's a kind of yeah. a, an aching feeling that they have. And when they land on somebody or something that they can mirror they land very strongly or very heavily onto them. Yeah, no one else has ever shared this pain that they have. And so you really cling to that person who does. And you want to forgive everything bad about them because you want them to do it for you because you're healing each other's pain. Um, But some of the things I see people doing, people come to Third Factor all the time saying like, oh, this is, can I tell you about, I get pitches for articles about autism. It's really a popular one. Um, And I'm just going to tell you how to change the world for autistic people. And I always say like, I don't, I don't know that you, first of all, this is not about autism. I don't know anything really formally about autism. And why are you introducing yourself with a diagnostic label? Like, I don't know anything else about you. All you're doing is talking about a label. Um, But they're, and so, so of course they remain lonely. And this, they don't have the confidence that there's anything else that that they can say uh, on an internet, in an internet space. And so then they, they stay in this internet space and they don't, they don't practice the skills they're lacking in the real world. And all of us are doing this, I should say, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. it's very common. This is not just gifted kids anymore. We all are used to just talking about our struggles, projecting out this thing, whatever our cause is. We put it out on social media and and people will maybe reject our idea because that's all they see about us. They reject our idea and we see that as rejecting ourselves, Or, but if we were in person, it wouldn't go that way, right? If we were in person, we would get a warm, like a smile, like, oh, that's very interesting that you're talking about this. Let me tell you what I see in mm-hmm. in you or in this idea, because I know you, I'm talking to you one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And I can then draw on our shared, our shared experience, our knowledge of each other. And we can also see each other's body language and, oh, respond to the emotion that's coming out there. And that's the cure for loneliness. Yeah. Not going online and finding people who resonate with the sort of 
pain, the words we, we channel through diagnoses or words like gifted, even again, mm-hmm. like we, they're all limiting. Yeah. I'm curious, Jesse, because, you know, we, of course, all of us work very much online. We wouldn't be connected here if we didn't all have, uh, you know, a, a li- large online presence. And there was a, a life before online too. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if somebody had these traits, let's say they, they were kind of overexcitable, they didn't think exactly like most of their peers, and they were existing in the world, how how might they connect if they didn't actually use the term gifted or overexcitable to like find other gifted and overexcitable people? Like I'm thinking about the, this is just a complete hypothetical, but Maybe somebody who was like really, really into stamp collecting in a way that made them kind of a a little bit awkward and a little bit of an outlier. But they go to like a stamp collecting club and they find other people who are kind of nerdy stamp collectors too. And they develop friendships around their interests rather than, oh, I'm going to a meeting for gifted kids. Like the label itself is just a description to try and capture something. But the something that was originally there is that intensity, the passion, the creativity, the enthusiasm. And and that can lead to really great connections, even if you've never been diagnosed or you don't have a label. So I'm just wondering, I mean, we, we all come from a generation where we didn't, at least when we were 10 and 11, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. So I'm just wondering if we can maybe reflect on like, how do these traits lead to connections if you're not focused on the label of the trait? Does that make sense? Can, can I, yeah, yeah, I'm really interested sure. in what Jesse will say. I just want to say to add to this, because it's, it's a really good point. Malcolm Clark did a brilliant thread. He's on Twitter. He's a gay man. And he did a brilliant thread about, well, really, you know, these gay straight alliance or these gay lesbian clubs and schools, they, they, they shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be the shared interests or mm-hmm. share, it's, it's too kind of introspective and it's too navel gazing and it's too self-conscious and self-absorbed to make it all about that. And I thought, oh, that's a very good point. Well, it certainly gave me pause for thought. Anyway, off you go, Jesse. You tell us. Oh, it's a great question. And it's something I've really thought a lot about with Third Factor because I thought, like, first of all, okay, what are my Google AdWords going to be that I want people to search for to find the content? But it also was originally sort of trying to connect over, trying to replicate what I was just describing as the in-person connection, maybe not over something as narrow as a shared interest, thinking back to, okay, the magnet program. And when I was in the gifted program, that was when I most felt like I belonged because I, maybe I'm told I'm in Tim. I mean, I definitely have been told, oh yeah, you know, the way you're thinking is different and like, don't intimidate people. And you're asking too many questions, you know, just like roll with things. You don't, don't annoy people. Uh, And so I kind of wanted to talk about that, but it's not good for, as adults, you know, you, hopefully you sort yourself just naturally by your career choice into a place where those people are going to be around and you have some sort of shared endeavor. I more and more have come to think the, the importance of doing something together, ideally creating something or maintaining something that's of value. Doing something together is just essential. It's not enough to come together and be like, are you gifted? I'm gifted. Like, there's not anything to share over that, really. Once you've gotten over the fact that it's okay (laughs) to be you, yeah, (laughs) you you just have to know that 
the way you are is okay. And there are other people like you, even if it's a little bit uncommon. Um, and I really think, you know, we, we haven't talked a lot about gender stuff here, which is the theme of your podcast. But this is a thing that, you know, for intellectual women, um, there are a lot of challenges that go with being an intellectual woman, even in our, you know, 21st century society. And the same goes for sensitive men. Those things are still problems and still outside of the norm. And so once you've acknowledged that it's okay to be outside the norm, then you should, you, you need to let go of the, the diet, the diagnosis, the label, whatever it is, because that's just going to get in the way. Um, it reminds me of, uh, I remember Andrew Solomon, he's a great writer and uh, he he, di- he wrote The Noonday Demon, which is a brilliant book about depression. But he did a great TED talk and he said, you know, this search for meaning it's too blank, it's too vague, it's too kind of wide. And he said the same search for happiness. And his point was you had to forge meaning. And Mm. you know what I mean? You had to forge meaning out of the life you have. You have to kind of forge a purpose, forge meaning out of your life. And I thought, now that's a really good challenge. As in you make meaning out of your life. Don't go searching for meaning because you're just all over the place. It's the very same as this. If you just meet, oh, here we are, gifted together. It's too wide and it's too vague. And so I wonder, is the gender, they're they're forging meaning. They're trying to look for purpose and meaning. To me, it could be. Yeah, it it, well, it does. I mean, there's been things said about uh, social justice is filling this role of of a religion, you know, yeah, of a cause, a thing to belong time. for. And you have to tie that to certainly emotional overexcitability. Say that again. It's certainly very pious. So yeah, it really is. <laughs> and, and they, you know, they, they, they have a strong sense of justice. If you're emotionally overexcitable, you don't like the idea. I mean, who likes the idea of, of, you know, marginalized people having their rights trampled. No one likes that. Oh, I love that, Jesse. That's my yeah. favorite thing. <laughs> I know I'm like I'm an Egyptian white supremacist according to some people which is fun but anyway yes you're right I mean I do think these kids tend to be very sensitive sometimes with you know gifted kids as young as like five and six they're asking their mom you know why why is that homeless person have no money and they'll get get completely destroyed for days and days and days on end of seeing something that's unjust so so, yeah, continue. Yeah, I think it definitely no. kind of taps into that. It's absolutely the case. And so they, they and it's really, I've heard a lot of parents of these kids. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I, I hear it over and over, you know, talking about a six-year-old who just is, you know, just completely beside herself because there's bad things happening in the world or early mortality salience realizing, you know, knowing that their parents are going to die one day and having to talk to a six-year-old who you can't just say like, don't worry, that's a long time from now. You don't know that mommy, you could die mm-hmm. tomorrow in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, mm-hmm. it's very hard. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why it is. Um, and it's not only, you know, high IQ people who get that way, but there is that overlap between these intense, sensitive people uh, wanting to control the, the badness in the world and stop people from being hurt and, and experiencing anything bad. And what's the what, what do you think is the connection with the alienation from the body that you often allude to? Yeah, that's a great connection, actually, because so even before this current social justice movement uh, and its manifestation. I mean, these threads have been running for a long time, right? There's many waves of feminism. The the Mm -hmm. problems are age old. Um, But 
think of this gifted girl who is, she wants to be an intellectual leader. Maybe she looks up to, you know, thought leaders who are men and gets told, oh, like you have a crush on this or that. Like instead of having a crush on celebrities, she is interested in, in, in thoughts and ideas and, you know, business leaders or whatever that she wants to be. And they happen to be men. And she's told instead, no, you, you know, her friends want to know what movie star she has a crush on. And she feels maybe that's not where she is. And then that would require her to pay more attention to her body than to her studies or her nerdy interests. And so then she has to go bra shopping with her mom when she's, you know, 11 or whatever age, it's younger and younger, right? And sees this, like, come hither look on the lingerie model and feels really like, oh, God, I'm being shoved in that direction. I'm already being penalized for being, you know, I'm told not to be smarter than the boys. And she wants to have that world in her head be where she wants to dwell and be encouraged there. And so all of these stories, they only have to be, she doesn't have to experience abuse. She doesn't have to experience, you know, some like rape culture out there. She just has to know that this can happen. It's enough because her imagination Mm -hmm. is very powerful and the body becomes threatening. She understands that, you know, even if she uses birth control, if she's sexually active, she can get pregnant. And that's a very heavy weight for someone who is, you know, ruminating, overthinking, uh, or want safety, right? Like sexuality is just not safe. And it's not safe. The boys who are who understand about toxic masculinity, they don't want to use the girl. They feel guilty about that. I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. And the girls don't want to have any, like, no, I, they want, I know many people, uh, many women now who would, who, who actually really would rather wait for marriage to be sexually active. Like, but you just don't hear about that in the culture. Um, and a lot of times it, it is with people who are very, you know, cerebral women. And so they completely alienate from their bodies because you can't not be sex positive in, in, in the progressive culture. Uh, you don't want to be sex negative, but there's not really a neutral place to be. And a lot of these kids just alienate from the body. Um, I experienced something like that myself. Yeah. Uh, just one thing. I would have thought this is an age old problem. I wouldn't have thought like the sex positive thing I would have thought clever people very often were alienated from I'm just thinking of famous people through history that were quite clearly alienated from their body Schopenhauer being maybe one of them (laughs) who was extremely alienated from his body as far as I could gather yeah it's it no it's definitely age-old it's definitely age-old um I think that this is just the way it manifests in in today's culture in the in the way we're talking about it now yeah so I I discovered. Well, go ahead. Were you going to ask a question? Before no, I no. Keep along? going. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I in I remember in 2006 I discovered uh, the idea of asexuality, and that was something that I just was like, wow, that really describes me as a kid uh, and into my 20s because I just really didn't. I, I I was you know getting back to friendships, right? If you're the little girl who's like, I'm not really interested in crushes and dating and whatever. And also I don't really couldn't click with any of these boys. So like, whatever. Um, I don't want to talk about that. And then, so you, you don't have a crush and then you go to your sleepover party with your friends and they want to play truth or dare. And they say, well, you have to say which boy you like. And you're like, the truth is that I don't have a crush. And they're like, well, you're not telling me what boy you like. You must not trust me. You must not be my friend. So this ends up putting a strain on the friendship. Uh, but yeah, I think it's 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 age old, and it's and I'm just describing one 
experience. I know other people who are more precocious that way, feel their own forms of alienation. This is just, this is the one that alienates from the body, which was the question that, that you were asking. Uh, some people alienate for different reasons from, from their groups. Hmm. You know, this is bringing to my mind um, a tangent, which we're about to launch into, <laughs> um, but it's bringing to my mind this book. Um, I think, Jesse, you actually know this author by Hillary Jacobs Hendel. It's called oh, It's yeah. Not Always Depression. Do you remember? You know that, right? I, I do. I okay. own the book. I haven't read it yet. But okay. yeah, no, you and okay. I and her, I think we're talking on Twitter. So yes, that's how yes. we, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so basically her, her thesis it comes from um, uh, emotion-focused therapy, I think is the name of the original type of therapy. And Hilary Jacobs Hendel has this thing called the change triangle. And what she says is that all human beings come kind of like biologically equipped with these core emotions. I think they're like joy, excitement, sexual arousal, fear, sadness, something else. I don't remember what they all are. Disgust is one of them. Disgust is one, right? And she says that we have inhibitory emotions, which kind of launch Uh, or kind of latch on or inhibit us from feeling our core emotions. And those are things like anxiety and nervousness and things like that. And when I think about this issue of sexuality or asexuality or being really cerebral, I do get curious about whether or not people feel so overwhelmed by the baggage that comes along with their core desires, that it just becomes too much. Like I'm thinking about this idea that if you are just developing a friendship, a platonic friendship with a boy and people start accusing you of liking him, how incredibly embarrassing that is. Oh, that's another inhibitory emotion is embarrassment or shame. So like when we have these types of emotional experiences piled on top of a different emotion, it can make it really hard to parse out. So, of course, in that example, I'm not implying that that young girl really liked the boy. But if there was any instance whatsoever where she saw someone who she thought looked nice, maybe right along with that feeling comes a shame or an anxiety or what does that mean about me or what will people think? So I just get really curious about these kinds of um kind of core core emotional or sensual experiences. And I don't mean that in terms of sexuality, but like it's a sensuous experience to like get butterflies in your stomach if somebody that you see comes along and you find them to be attractive or something like that. So I, I just really wonder when these very sensitive kids and young people and adults are going through life, if they aren't also more prone to experience the inhibitory emotions like shame and anxiety that get kind of piled on to the core emotions that they might be experiencing. I think that has to go with this, you know, this, you get, you're more sensitive to being prickled by the quills of the hedgehog. And that's, you know, that's what we're, we're talking about again. Right. And, and yeah, no, I, I, from what I've read of, of Hillary Jacobs Hendel, that it's gotta be such a useful tool, the change triangle and exploring these inhibitory emotions and the complexity of, of feeling when you have had to fight, when you have been that girl or boy, we have a writer for third factor mm-hmm. who has the same problem. He talks about like, he's a sensitive guy and he has these female friendships and he gets accused of fancying. The, mm-hmm. the the girl mm-hmm. in question and it always complicates things and in that case I mean I he says that and I take him for his word that he really does just want to have 
platonic friendships with with women. Um, but also to your your point, Sasha, maybe a, a, a kid going through this stage, especially if they haven't felt mirrored, if they've been told they're weird because of their cerebral interests, you know, been told that they're nerdy, whatever it is, um, or intimidating, uh, especially for for you know aggressive or assertive women who get called aggressive. Um, they 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 have cultivated that identity so they've had to fight for it so hard Ooh. that they don't want to let it go they don't want to let like the the possibility of complicating it with a, a sensual feeling of any sort that that's that's scary and you understand why that's scary um especially for for younger people and it's you just i i, I personally i'm speaking for myself here I got told, don't intimidate the boys or they won't like you. So I was just like, well, they're all boring anyway. Who cares? I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not interested in them. So yeah, I mean, there's just, you, 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 if you haven't been told, this is why I love the idea of the orchid and the dandelion, because if the dandelion or the orchid gets what it needs and is, is gets the right orchid food and is put in an environment where it can just grow rather than being warned that this is that girls can't be that way. Boys can't be that way. Maybe you don't have to have those inhibitory emotions come up. Maybe you're safer to explore those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's nice if you're in a magnet school where this is all common, it sounds from my anecdotal reports again, because that's what we do at third factor. We get anecdotal stories. Um, But those people seem to have had a better adolescence now on the other hand they are hard it's harder when they come out into the real world and not everyone is like them you have to face that reality at some point Mm -hmm. Um, that's interesting i think from what i hear some schools like this now also you know because all teenagers regardless of whether they have these gifted traits or not they're all prone to adolescent tasks of development and kids tend to be kind of clicky sometimes and uh, create in groups and out groups and judge one another. And my understanding is that some of these schools with all these gifted social justice oriented kids can kind of impose a different type of social order on one another, which is that you have to stand for certain political ideas and you have to be a re- kind of revolutionary kid in this or that way. So I think every every child is kind of prone to falling into that set of dynamics, right? Um I wonder if it's if it's different now for some of the girls that you're talking about, if there's like a different set of standards of what it means to be like a liberated 15 year old these days compared to when I was growing up or when we were growing up. Yeah, I, I the, the way that I first came into contact with that, actually, it's a little older than you're saying than, than 15 years old. And I'm told that this this changes very quickly. Like what I learned two years ago talking mm. about teenagers is different now. Like, right. The way that this unfolds, uh, that's, the, that's what youth culture does. So this is dated by a few <laughs> years. But I was actually a member of the Democratic Socialists of America myself a few years ago, which is very woke stuff. It wasn't when I joined it. It was, I'm really interested in, in economics. I come from a Rust Belt. I'm from Detroit. So um, that stuff always just really interested me. And I wanted to kind of figure out a way to uh, work on, on things like that, even in, in, not outside a job, just like it interested me. And those were also independent thinkers. To call yourself a socialist before 
Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 here here in the U.S., uh, he called himself a democratic socialist, which before that you just couldn't uh, in, in this country uh, and be taken seriously. But somehow it resonated. Right. I'm I'm one of the I'm an elder millennial. Um, so I'm one of the older people in that group. But still, like we are my my age group can can break either way on that. Um, mm. But um, it was amazing that. The, I got a, a hint of this youth culture when the day Trump was elected, that organization changed dramatically. The, you could see people joining as more and more states fell for Trump that night of the election. And they were all really young people. It went from 60s boomer old radicals who thought I was this cute little kid because I lost a tooth the day the Berlin Wall came down <laughs> to people who were like, you were alive when the Berlin Wall came down? Like, you must be ancient. <laughs> so, um, and and those kids really were, um, they, we were all calling ourselves socialists, right? We were all of the progressive left, but they're really, they did not seem to see themselves as outsiders, as defensive about being socialists. This just seemed how you were supposed to be. And even if there were, if their classmates were not all on board with them, they totally got it. It was like a new click or something like, and it's just, it's become part of the culture. And so, yeah, I think that, that it's interesting because the internet, the internet is a huge part of our lives now in a way it wasn't even for those of us who were online as teens in the nineties, that was still as a place where nerds and weird people could hide out and you could escape. But now it's so dominant in all of, all of our, uh, our culture, youth culture and everyone's culture. And so that gives the cerebral abstract intensive types more power to exercise their, emotional sensitivities and to push these things, these causes of justice that before they just had to have their little table in the cafeteria and be like, you know, vote for Bernie Sanders, fight for, you know, this or that liberation. And people are like, aha, yeah, fine. But they can find each other now. Mm. And so that changes the experience of being one of these very sensitive, very cerebral kids. I do think that they are still out there. They still feel weird. Um, I have in the in the issue of Third Factor that's coming out, uh, our August issue, there is a detransitioned woman who talked about finding this stuff online. She is she's very uh, highly gifted uh, intellectually. She's a lesbian and she did feel lost. She didn't feel she many of the things I was describing in my story. She related to, you know, the idea of uh, I'm not allowed to be that way as a woman. I have to care about my appearance, all of that stuff. And she didn't know that she could be otherwise, but she did find the internet. She did find the queer community online and that helped, you know, that on on one, on one level it helped, but it also had a party line. And so if you're a questioner, right, you still run into this, this intellectual overexcitability, you still get in trouble. That's why I figured it was worth founding a magazine on the internet about this topic because whatever is in vogue in in our beliefs and our values questioning is never going to be in vogue that can't hold together as a culture those people are always going to be in trouble uh, to some degree you have to learn mm-hmm. to function as a questioner and i honestly think you know i use the word gifted but i i, I should just rebrand and say like we're for questioners and troublemakers oh, yeah. but that sounds different too like how do you figure out how do you find this group right I'm, i like your rebranding i like it i think mm-hmm. people do flinch i know i flinch from giftedness and overexcitability i think i see it as very American 
And I feel I just go, oh, that's just American labeling. They're obsessed with labeling over there <laughs> and it's coming <laughs> over here and I need to resist. <laughs> that's yeah. how I respond uh, you're so to that. right, though. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. I, I used it at first because I thought that that would help me get it shared in, in gifted groups and so on. Uh, you know, it's it's marketing, but don't go for the marketing. Just say what You're you right. want to say and hope that yeah. it'll get shared. That's what I've learned. I should go with that. Um, but yeah, no, it, gifted is a, such a problematic word. Problematic there, I'm using that word. I know it's going to make people crazy. <laughs> David, how, how do we do this podcast without any words? Let, that's the next, that's I'm questioning. Jesse, before we wrap up, well, Stella, I want to get to your question too, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on a topic that I'm often asked about by parents who have artistic, creative, young teenage kids who are gender questioning, and then they discover this huge amount of anime that they are looking at, lots of gay anime and gender questioning anime and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this but what can you what can you tell us Jesse <laughs> Yeah okay so I I also am somewhat baffled by this but I am baffled from the perspective of someone who studied Japanese in high school and lived in Japan and all the people who go to Japan it's it's <sighs> A lot of people go because they like anime and then they get there and they wonder why their homestay family when they say they're otaku. Otaku in Japanese means, you know, I am a social reject. I never leave the house. I don't get out much. That's what it means. But they've taken it in in, in anime, you know, fandom circles. It, it just means I'm an anime fan. And so you have some miscommunications over that. I thought they <laughs> meant the I'm a family. nerd. It's kind of softer over here that's how I it's, yeah in English it's softer yeah. in English it's softer not in Japanese <laughs> I so, am an odd guy um, pleased to meet you but in Japan there's no way to say I'm odd right I tried to say another word for oh I'm a little bit quirky right like I just the quirky is such a positive word in in English it's friendly because American and Western culture is very friendly to being a yes. little bit odd not yes. too odd yeah. but a little bit odd not Japan not Japan um but but that's because their culture is the whole collective. So say, they'd say, well, why would you? Yeah, it's like a, it's the nail that sticks out gets hammered down is a saying mm -hmm. in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And nice. so I even used like one it's kawari mono, if anyone speaks Japanese who's listening. And that I and, and, and this Japanese guy who was in America because he was trying to escape Japan loved that I used that word. But it was he was just like, you're using yeah, You don't want to call yourself kawari mono. I'm glad you did. But I, you don't want to call yourself that. What's anyway, the literal I'm translation? Gonna, Sorry, just, if we were to like Google translate that word. it That's a good question. It's like a almost means like changeling. I it think. sounds Ooh, incredibly like, like Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah, it does. By coincidence. But uh, yeah, a, a thing that has changed, mm. uh, a, a slightly changed being, I think, is the literal translation. So anyway, um, it's weird because for us in the West, Japan, uh, we see... Anime is not mainstream in Japan either. It's, it's a weird... But, Japan has a different way of managing these sort of, um, you know, the, the outliers. They, they just get managed differently in 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 Japanese culture, and the resident, but the the, the 
cartoons resonate with with Westerners who feel a little bit out of the norm as well. And maybe because of their intensities and because of the complex stories, like people who talk about anime positively, they find a lot of like legitimately good things to say about these storylines. Um, but they get so immersed in it. And it becomes almost like these, my theory, this is a hypothesis. Your, your listeners could disagree with me. Tell me if you agree or disagree, because um, I could be wrong. But the best I can figure from having been in Japan with, with these people for several years, um, and also being in creative writing groups where, you know, people really want to write fan fiction. And I always wanted to write my own stuff. I didn't want to get into fandom. But fandom is a place, and anime has fandom, where you can let that deep imagination run wild, if you've never had a place to channel it, fandom is like this really absorbent sponge that can just take all of your intensity, soak it up, allow you to be stimulated, but safe at the same time. And to find other people who are like you, who will mirror you and who, and then you have a great time. Like I'm not saying they're not having a great time. They clearly are, but um, you just see a lot of these people, which is part of why I, I, developed a lifelong interest in in this stuff that I'm calling overexcitability. I didn't have that word when I was living in Japan. Uh, when I when I learned it, I'm like, that's what it is. That's mm. what you see when you go to Japan. And that's what's so much in my social cohort as someone who is a creative writer, uh, who was in a gifted program, who went to Japan. And it's, it's the same. Fandom absorbs intensity there's other stuff too i don't feel like i can speak to like why are all the trans why do the trans people all have anime avatars and some of the stuff that's going on there with you know boys sexuality i, I really can't speak to that but i feel like there's got to be some connection to what we're talking about here too yeah i heard this really interesting idea i don't remember where i heard this that if people are slightly on the autism spectrum or have Asperger's or something like that and struggle to pick up on social cues, the anime characters are such exaggerated expressions of emotion that it's very easy for them to understand what the emotional state is. Whereas in other types of entertainment or other types of imagery, maybe the emotions are more subtle and it's harder to pick up. So I thought that was really compelling. It's probably one piece of a whole puzzle, but I thought that was a really good theory. That rings true based on what I have heard and what I've seen, uh, some of the, my classmates, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I, it, I have a couple of questions because I know we're wrapping up this too. That's kind of pressing on my mind. One is, you th it was a throwaway line you said, which was, uh, the Japanese manage the outliers differently. And I thought, how? <laughs> That's one question. And the second question, I'll go on to the second question. You tell me that one first. Oh, they, uh, well, they don't manage them well at all because they retreat to their their, their bedrooms oh. and their parents have to bring them food. It's the called hikikomori. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. They don't manage them well at all. Oh, I thought there and, was a whole my, system. Oh, God. Yeah. No, that's awful. Yeah, no, there's, there's no good way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, I, <laughs> I read about, I, I actually put that in my book, uh, 2015 book, Cottonwool Kids, and, and I, I, I read so much about it at the time. It's, it was, it's a horrifying scenario for those but the thing I wanted Absolutely. to ask you actually was I th it's extraordinary your life because it seems it's almost adjacent to the to the classic ROGD kid insofar as the you know the overexcitability the interest in anime the the asexual kind of kind of all of those things it's very close to what an awful lot of ROGD kids are living I can see why you've ended up very very interested if you follow me but I'm thinking about sure. really um gender 
and asexuality. And also I've often found that I I have a theory and many people do as well, that, you know, a, a fixation upon your gender can be just a way to repress your sexuality. And I wonder, is asexuality repressed? Not always, obviously, but is are they all linked, those three things, gender, asexuality and sexual repression? That's well, that's a very complicated question. Sorry. But yes, I mean, you can I can see how lines can be drawn between all of those things, especially when um, it's wow. <laughs> I'm having thoughts going in all different directions here. Um, yeah, they they are, especially when we still have homophobia, you know, it's still yeah. not cool to be a lesbian. Um that's what I'm hearing, at least, yeah. from, from some of the younger people I talk to. And it's dangerous. Um, you know, sexuality is dangerous, like we were talking to, just heterosexual or whatever. And, and your gender uh, expression can is a way that you communicate, you know, who you are and what you want in the world. And if you have all this complexity going on and you're unusual, well, I just, let me, I want to I throw out the word queer, um, this word is coming up more and more and more. I've heard so many interesting things around the word queer lately, especially doing this gender issue, but I did the gender issue because I started hearing this stuff earlier. I know when I read the word queer, it was probably, it was like in the secret garden when I was nine, you know, the Francis Hodges and Burnett children's book, I think, or some British, oh, you know, literature that uses the word queer because we don't use that in America really mm. like that, but you reread children's literature and like, Oh, I love that word. I, you know, I was talking about finding the word like mono, like what's the right, nice, friendly mm. word for being a little bit quirky, quirky, queer is kind of like that too. They both start with Q, which is a weird letter. We don't Ooh. use it very much. And so it really resonates with people who just want a nice way of saying, you know, I'm not defective. I'm not, you know, a mess. I'm just a little odd. And I just want to prepare you for the fact that I'm not going to fit exactly. And so I, 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 and then, and then you learn that queer is related to gay and lesbian and even a slur. So, you know, for, for different generations see it differently. I know, but the idea that being queer um, well, I heard, I heard the most thing, amazing thing that blew my mind talking to someone in the Netherlands about this, that in the Netherlands, I'm told gay and lesbian isn't even queer anymore because it's so accepted that it's asexual and non-binary that is queer. And that just kind of, I don't know what to say to that, because on the one hand, yeah, I, I, I felt a little bit weird as a kid who the word asexual made me feel mirrored and understood when I was younger and non-binary. I called myself, a, you know, a pretty androgynous woman, uh, but I would have, you know, I would have gotten that word when I was younger. Um, and so, yeah, OK, you feel queer because you've been made to feel like an outlier. You've been reminded that you are unusual, that you are too much, that you don't fit the perfect image of what a wife is supposed to be. Um, and so you're queer and that's the, the British children's storybook meaning of queer, but it's now got mapped over the LGBT version of queer, mm. which is now socially valorized. We have like pride month, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get rainbow colored cookies at the bakery because you're queer and it makes the, the people who are odd, but straight, you know, or more or less straight. Um, but just odd. It, it, I just think that's a fascinating tension. 
um, especially given also the idea of psychological androgyny that is common to creative people. If you look up uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's work, he's the preeminent creativity researcher. Um, he talks about that as a thing that you see in creative people. Can you can you maybe touch on that link? I mean, maybe that'll be the last thing we we obviously are extracting as much as we can from you <laughs> with not as much time as we'd love. But what is the what is the link? Because I remember Stella when we did this episode, you know, we danced around it, and I was like, "Well, maybe it's this," and you're like, "I'm not convinced. I don't get it." Mm. What is the link between? androgyny and creativity and our giftedness. What is that? Yeah. Okay. So giftedness and creativity are often, again, overlap, but I'm specifically talking about creativity here, right? That you're able to create something novel and useful. Okay. um, Art or science or whatever it is. And so this comes from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's 1996 popular book, uh, just called Creativity. Uh, And I actually copied it out in case it came up. So, um, he says, in all cultures, and I'm quoting now, in all cultures, whoops, uh, I, where'd my notes go? Hang on. Uh, in all cultures, men are brought up to be masculine and to disregard and repress those aspects of their temperament the culture regards as feminine, whereas women are expected to do the opposite. Creative individuals, to a certain extent, escape this rigid gender role stereotyping. When tests of masculinity or femininity are given to young people over and over, one finds that creative and talented girls are more dominant and tough than other girls, and creative boys are more sensitive and less aggressive than their male peers. This tendency toward androgyny sometimes is understood in purely sexual terms, and therefore it gets confused with homosexuality. But psychological androgyny is a much wider concept, referring to a person's ability to, at the same time, be aggressive and nurturant, sensitive and rigid, dominant and submissive, regardless of gender. A psychologically androgynous person, in effect, doubles his or her repertoire of responses and can interact with the world in terms of a much richer and varied spectrum of opportunities. It is not surprising that creative individuals are more likely to have not only the strengths of their own gender, but those of the other one, too. Mm. That's what Csikszentmihalyi said. That's this amazing. has been do- like documented that creative individuals are to use the current word they're gender fluid gender queer you know but it's just it's just being a creative man or a creative woman that's that would cover it too if you use that language yeah wow that's really fascinating so i i wonder if more people knew that again that this were a this is a way of being being creative and intellectually uh very active creative is such a such a nicer word isn't it Beyond mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> all the other words yes. we've used, like creative. There are yeah. there are a lot of labels that are negative. Yeah. There are reasons that they get negative. <laughs> As mm-hmm. we said, these are these could be difficult people, but and there are positive ways to spin it. Um but I I just wish this were out there more for people to understand. Whatever else they choose to do with their, their gender um identity, this this is useful stuff. I I, I, I hope. It was useful for me. Yeah. I'm just thinking about people like Prince and David Bowie and these these incredibly creative and very gender nonconforming before the label gender nonconforming people. Yeah. yeah. They've always been out there. It's not new. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can find role models. That's something I really want to do is is 
I have uh, this young woman who wrote for me said she just wished she'd had more role models of of gifted and creative women. And I'm sure that's also true for gifted and creative boys. Uh, Whatever word, I I also hate the labels, but we got to find some way to connect people with people who are like them. Role models Mm -hmm. are essential for these kids. Mm -hmm. Essential. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jesse, we're so grateful to have you on. It was really fun to kind of talk through all these issues. If our audience wants to learn more about your work or check out your gender series, is there somewhere particular we can send them? Absolutely. You can find us at thirdfactor.org or uh, we're on Twitter and Facebook, third fa- at thirdfactormag. But yeah, our gender issue should be out by the time, about the time this issue or this podcast goes live. So I'd love to hear feedback. Uh, I welcome critical opinions. We're all, we're grassroots. We're trying to explore and connect people with role models. So thanks for having me guys. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RHYME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 